I'm excited to be with you all this morning. I've been away from my family for almost 10 days, so you get to be my family this morning. And uh, I have no greater joy in the world than talking about my Savior. I hope that some of you saw that during Sunday school this morning. And I'm going to continue that as we look at um, three psalms today. And by the end of this sermon, I hope that you will see why I wanted to do three psalms and not just one. So let me just, uh, what I'm going to do is give kind of an introduction and narrow this down until we finally come to the text, which will start in Psalm 14. I just think about the Psalms together for a little bit and why we come to the Psalms, why, why we read them, what the Psalms say about themselves. So I think about Psalms as food um, for our souls, for hungry people that need spiritual life. Um, Psalm 81 says, He would feed you with the finest of wheat, and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. So feeding and honey and wheat, Scripture um, telling us about God's word as food for our souls. It's also a guide for us. People come to the Psalms for that reason. Uh, Psalm 18, For it is you who light my lamp, the Lord my God lightens my darkness. Or people will come to the Psalms for courage in the face of spiritual warfare. In Psalm 76, there he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. Glorious are you more than more majestic than the mountains full of prey. And so God comes to our rescue and our aid as he's our great warrior. Or we might come to the Psalms for healing uh, because life is difficult and we take uh, many blows because of sin and the wounds that affect us from ourselves and from other people. And so Psalm 6 says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are trouble, troubled. And so the Psalms give life to the fullest expression of Christian experience. And we've been talking here kind of about us. So I ask the question, is that all that they are? Are they only here to put words to our feelings? Are they just about me and my life? And I hope that we all know that, of course, that's not true. The Psalms are much more than that. They teach us about God, don't they? It is God who feeds us. It's not just food as an end to itself. It is God who lightens our darkness. It is God who breaks the teeth of his enemy. It is God who heals up our dried bones. The Psalms show us what God is like. And Christians love the Psalms for revealing to them God as he really and fully is. But now just like we did in Sunday school, I want to ask the question of what do we mean by God? You say, what are you talking about? What do you mean by God? Well, I hope to answer that question as we think about how God is presented to us in the Psalms and especially as how the New Testament comes to the Psalms and interprets them for us so that we can learn to read them as the New Testament writers read the Psalms. So we're going through Psalm 14, 15, and 16. And you have to read these Psalms in light of the New Testament. And I want to show you this morning three, three kind of goals as I do this. I want this to be a lesson to help you learn how to read your Bible better, okay? I also want it to show you 
how you can keep from making mistakes, mistakes that people often make when reading the Psalms. I'll talk about those in just a minute. And most of all, and this is the purpose of a sermon, it's not just instruction, but it's to lift you up into heaven itself. And I want to bring you to the fountain of life through the Psalms so that you can drink from the best and the only true water as you come to this text. When you turn to the Psalms, you want to see them embodied not merely in the writer of the Psalms, nor in your own experience, but in the person and work of your Savior, the one who died for your sins, the Lord Jesus Christ, because the Psalms are about him. He is their singer, and he leads you in a choir of praise to him. You know, one of the Psalms is quoted in this regard in the book of Hebrews, in in Hebrews chapter 2. Listen to what it says. That is why he, that is Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, quote, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And Hebrews takes that psalm from Psalm 22 and says that Jesus is the one speaking that, and he's the one singing and leading us into the, uh, the very worship that we're gathered into right now. So let's get a little bit more specific about Psalms before we actually get to the passage. First of all, let's look at the writer and the audience of the Psalms. First thing to consider is when reading the Psalm is the reference or the person to whom the Psalm refers. And most Psalms have as their reference human beings. Uh, that they're written about human beings to human beings. I say that sounds pretty obvious, but there are a few exceptions. A couple of the Psalms actually address the heavenly host, believe it or not, um, or the creation and, and call the whole creation to join in praising God. So beginning of Psalm 29 begins, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. That Psalm is addressed to them. But most of the Psalms are written to us and they're written all by us or by human beings. Now, whoever the Psalm is written to, it first applies to that person or group of people. And I say that because we are very quick in American Christianity to want to move to application. And the application of the Psalms... um, we usually have that be about us, don't we? That is, we read the Psalms in light of our own circumstances. And now that's not wrong because we're human beings and we share in the experiences of the Psalter and the writers and the reference. But we first need to ask about the subject of the Psalm. So each Psalm has an original singer and most tell of his experiences or some specific experience of his people. And this can be in uh, two ways. So first of all, it can be some specific experience, actually, in the psalm. Uh, There's many psalms that have an inscription at the beginning of them. And when uh, I have people read the psalms in our church, I say, okay, please read Psalm 2, or in this case, Psalm 3. Please read Psalms 3. They always start with... uh, the actual non-italic text, and they always skip the inscription. Have you ever done that? That's holy inspired writing. Psalm 3 begins, a psalm of David. When he fled from Absalom, his son. 
Or another psalm, Psalm 51, you know it well, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him. And that psalm's about Bathsheba. And then you have psalms that are written to a whole group of people for very specific reasons, like the songs of ascent in Psalm 120 and so on. So the inscriptions, the inscriptions are part of the inspired writing. And they tell us about some experience, and you want to let that experience be the first thing that guides you when you're reading it. But sometimes we don't know the author or the experience that he's talking about. Nevertheless, we can put ourselves somewhat in 3,000-year-old shoes and try to understand what he or they might have been feeling. And I say he or they, not us, but them. And when we keep this in mind, it can help defend against that nasty tendency that we all have which is to make everything that we read in the Bible about us. Have you ever been in a Bible study? I know you all have. And you're sitting around reading the Bible, and then the first question that's asked is, what does this mean to you? The first question you should ask is, what does this mean? I want to know what it means. I don't want to know what it means to me. I want to know what the text means. Okay? So the Psalms are written for one man about his experience or for the entire community, the whole church. And that can represent then after that our own experience. But you have to get it in the right order. First you have to know what it means before you can know what it means to you. But there's one reference that most people when they read the Psalms, maybe not most, but maybe many, they don't see this referent at all. And he's frankly the most important referent if the New Testament has anything to say about it. And what I mean is, there is a person that the Psalms are about about and to, and that person is the Lord Jesus. Christ is the singer and the author of the Psalms. I tell people, I want to come out with a new book, and it's the Bible. And very simple, I want to have a red-letter edition of the Bible. And every word in the Bible will be red letters. Because he's the one that wrote it. And he's the one that it's to. And that's the way that the New Testament interprets the Psalms. They read the Psalms as his words, actions, and songs. As the second Adam, the Son of Man, Christ, is one of us. He's a human being. And so it's not wrong to read the Psalms as being about us. But he is the perfect one of us, isn't he? Because he's also God. And since he's our representative, it's not only not wrong to read the Psalms with him in mind, it is absolutely critical because only he can tell us how life's experiences on this earth as being sent by the Father can make sense. In Jesus' experiences, his commands, his obedience, and even our own failures the psalmist finds meaning and purpose. And we find ourselves in union with him through faith, and the psalms have their greatest significance to the psalmist and to his readers through Christ. Now, when people finally get this idea, oh, they're about him, then they have to interpret the psalms, and there are a couple of errors that people make with regard to Jesus in the psalms. So one is to not read the psalms through the lens of Christ at all. They just say, I don't believe what you're saying They're not really about him at all. The other mistake is to make incorrect application of Christ in the psalm where you force him into the psalm in a way that he doesn't actually fit. I love Charles Spurgeon, but he did this a lot. He would use a text and he'd just become a launching pad. 
He had great theology and always came to the gospel, and that's why I would always recommend him, but sometimes he's, he's doing things with the text that are just not there. We want to be careful with how we come to the text. They're about him, but not all in the exact same way. And so as we go through these three psalms, I hope to do it without committing um, either of those errors. I don't know if I'll succeed or not, but I'm going to try. So, Let's get a little bit more specific, and we'll soon come to the text. Preaching three psalms in a row is not often done when going through the psalms, but I think it can be important. You don't have to do this, but it can be important. When I read the psalms together, and um, I think we've all done this, you have a a Bible reading plan, and you're reading several psalms in a row. When you do that, you can be quickly struck by in the intentionality of the placement of psalms in the Psalter. So all scholars recognize that there's some level of intentionality in the order of the psalms as you find them in your Bible. So for example, going back to the Ascent Psalms, Psalm 120 through 134 are all called Ascent Psalms. They would sing these psalms as they ascended up to the, up the temple steps. But the Ascent Psalms are not found anywhere else. They're grouped right together for a reason. Or I think about even the arrangement of there's five books of the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 1 through 41 makes up the first book of the Psalms. And there's five of these. And there are general patterns and ideas and logic in each of the five books of the Psalms so that together they make up a whole. And I've had this idea in my mind. I've actually wondered if the Psalter isn't actually arranged in some way as kind of a covenant treaty where you have five parts of a covenant, a preamble and a prologue and ethical stipulations and sanctions and succession arrangements. So that the Psalter as a whole takes you from point A to point Z. So you start in Psalm 1 and you, you're a man planted by a tree, by the water. And then, you know, it goes through the whole gamut of the human experience and ends in Psalm 150 with the entire creation praising God. So there is, there's intentionality to the Psalms. It's one of the reasons I'm, I'm, I need to say that because we're doing these three Psalms together. There's also, you will find, repeating themes in Psalms. So if you went to Psalm 2 and Psalm 3, and you read them together, you would come to Psalm 2.6, and it would say, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then you would read Psalm 3, and it would say in verse 4, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. And you say, I just read about the holy hill. I wonder if there's a reason for that repetition. Again, in Psalm 2, you see um, the kings set themselves, uh, kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. But then you come into Psalm 3, and it says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me. So the language is repeating in those two psalms on several occasions. And so Psalm 2 informs our reading and understanding of Psalm 3. So be on the lookout for those kinds of connections as you read through the Psalter, and I think it will help you get a bigger understanding of them. So let's come now to the text. And we're going to read three psalms. They're all really short. Uh, the 16 is the longest one. And what I want to do is have you turn to this psalm, Psalm 14 first. We'll read it, and then we'll look at it, okay? So, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. 
They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is no, none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned away uh, aside. Together they become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. They have no knowledge. All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. So we'll see. I just did what I uh, am not supposed to do. To the choir master of David, right? It's in that italics. And you go, I, I, I don't need to read that. It makes you feel like it's uh, something that, that uh, the translator put in, but didn't, okay? So this is a psalm of David. David does not give us an exact situation in his life. And so when he famously starts it off, chastising the fool, there is no God. We're left to wonder who he might have in mind. Who in, who in David's life might he have been thinking, this man's a fool? He could probably come up with several examples. But we don't know with certainty, and so it's easy then to move to our own day. And you think about like the new atheists, Richard Dawkins and, Rock Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and, and the others. You know, the, they were called the four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse or something like that when they were writing 10, 15 years ago and became so popular. These men are full of learning. They think they have knowledge. They think they have wisdom, but they are senseless. They foolishly lie to themselves and to others. That's the first verse. And a lot of people would use that as a launching pad to just lambaste atheists. But you know what? As soon as we start to feel smug because we're not fools, because we believe in God, what does the psalmist do? Verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. And he answers, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And you go, oh my. These verses are placed alongside uh, several other Psalms in Romans 3. Where the Apostle Paul rightly applies them to Jew and Gentile alike. In other words, everyone. All people that have ever lived without distinction, without exception. There's no one in this room, not you, not your pastor, not your elders, not the person speaking to you right now, who is above these two verses. We have all turned away. Paul does this in order to condemn us, to condemn us all, to bring us to the lowest possible place. You stand condemned because you're a sinner. You're wicked. You have not sought after God. And unless you get that, you cannot be prepared to receive the good news. That's what the psalmist is doing. David has the same thing in mind. Now, the good news is, of course, about Christ. And the rest of the psalm anticipates this good news, even though it was written a thousand years before Jesus came in the flesh. So in verse 4 and 5, David contrasts the evildoer with God's people, and then with the righteous. They have no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people. 
as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. There they are in great terror for, terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. Now, when you read that after what I just said, it should make you ask a question. The question is, if everyone is evil, if everyone has turned aside and no one is seeking God and everyone is completely wicked, how then are there suddenly righteous people in the Psalms? Somehow the psalmist has introduced a distinction between those who turn aside and those who are God's people, even though God's people are clearly among those who at one time turned aside. And frankly, this psalm doesn't really answer that question. Though it hints at how this comes about in the last verse, as it anticipates the answer in verse 7. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When salvation comes, the Lord will restore the fortunes of his people. So somehow that answer of how there got to be God's people has something to do with the coming of the Lord. And it also hints at this, I think, in the names that it gives at the end. Let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. You see, Jacob is the old name, and it means deceiver. Israel is the new name that God gave to Jacob after he was converted. And God changed his name as an act of grace. And so the very name of Jacob to Israel shows movement from, wicked, from the wicked to the righteous. And so that's how Psalm 14 ends. Let's read Psalm 15. It's tempting to read Psalm 15 in isolation from Psalm 14. But let's read it. Who shall dwell on your holy hill? A Psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Now, it is tempting, I'll, I'll tell you this, to soften the language of this psalm in order to make it palatable and possible to do it, to perform it. In fact, almost every commentary that I've read on this, and that includes Reformed commentaries, sadly, read Psalm 15 as implying that God wants us to try our best and live good moral lives, even though those lives will not be perfect. And so that's the purpose of the psalm. This psalm is a classic example of how we can come to a text and moralize the language and destroy the language of the text because we don't have the ability to see the forest for the trees. Even when we might have a system of theology that would be perfectly capable of accepting the language as it is. Now here's what I mean. 
Let's look at the passage, all right? David is, again, the singer, and he asks, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now, he's actually asking the very question that I did a moment ago in Psalm 14. The question is, if everyone is wicked, how can anybody come near to you? You see that? And so if we're asking the same question at the beginning of Psalm 15 that I was asking in Psalm 14, then there's a relationship in these psalms. His answer, again, is they walk blamelessly. They do what is right. They speak truth. They don't slander. They don't do evil. They honor those who fear the Lord. They swear to their own hurt. They do not change. They do not put out their money in interest. They do not take a bribe. And the man who does those things will never be moved. And then the psalm ends. So here's the question. Who is the person being described here? And I want you to be honest with yourself as you answer it. Is it a person who tries hard? Is it a person who has the good outweigh the bad on some cosmic scale of justice? Is it a person in whom some deceit, some disobedience, some evil is found? Well, that's certainly not what the psalm says, is it? But it is how we often read it because we cannot think of how David could imply that he is able to dwell on a holy hill as a perfect man when both we and he know exactly who David is. David is that man in Psalm 51 who committed adultery and murdered one of his best friends. That's the man we're talking about here. This becomes all the more self-deceptive and destructive when we insert ourselves into this psalm of David and read it in light of us. But we ought to know better than anyone that our hearts are wicked and we often fall into sin. Hence, Psalm 14. Do you see how easy it can be to bring your own presupposition to the text? Rather than letting it say exactly what it has to say, So let me give you a little background to the psalm and then ask a couple more important questions. Uh, Background is really the first verse. What's going on in this verse? You have a tent and you have a holy hill. And for David, they both refer to the dwelling place of God. He probably has in mind with the tent, the tabernacle that was built by Moses. And... uh, you know, throughout the book of Exodus. Now, that tabernacle, like any sanctuary in the Bible, and there's a whole bunch of them, is a three-tiered structure, okay? You had a courtyard, uh, the common place. You had a holy place, and then you had the most holy place. And inside that curtain that divided the holy and the most holy, you had the Ark of the Covenant. It was a box that was covered with uh, two cherubim on top, and that Top, the lid was called the mercy seat. When they found King Tut's tomb, they actually found a, his royal chair. It was gold. On the sides, there were two cherubim. And he had a footstool that was made of gold. And when he put it out, he would sit on it and be enthroned on it. And the Ark of the Covenant was, uh, it had the very same idea. So that God would come down and sit and dwell between the cherubim is the language, okay? So uh, 
you find that God dwells enthroned above the cherubim in 1 Samuel 4.4. God dwelled in the tent in the most holy place. And by the way, uh, for Sunday school, uh, those of you who are here for that, God there would specifically be the angel of the Lord. It would be Jesus coming in and sitting there, and Moses would talk to him and have a conversation with him. So this is where God would dwell, inside that most holy place, in the tent. This was God's house, if you will. And the same is true of the holy hill. So throughout the ancient world, and it didn't matter where you could go, you could China, South America, North America, Europe, Africa, the Middle East, they all believed that the holy hill was the dwelling place of the gods. You can think of Zeus on Mount Olympus as a good example. The Bible is no different God was worshipped by Noah on Ararat. Abraham almost made his son a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. God dwelt on Mount Sinai. God had Solomon build a temple patterned after the tabernacle on Mount Zion. It's called God's holy hill. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he goes to the top of mountains and he's transfigured on a mountain or he gives the law on top of a mountain and so on. In fact, this goes all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible. In uh, Ezekiel 28, Eden is called the mountain of God. And on this mountain, God placed the first man. He placed Adam. And here, Adam would commune with God, and they would have meetings together. Now, let's ask a question. What was the state of the first man? What condition was he created in? Well, uh, Ecclesiastes tells us he was created innocent and upright. He was without sin. In other words, to put it in uh, the context of this morning, he's the, the man of Psalm 15. The psalm says, he who does these things shall never be moved. And what happened to Adam and Eve when they disobeyed God? They were moved, weren't they? They were moved off the holy hill. They were cast out of the dwelling place of God. And at Curious, God placed two cherubim, to guard the gate so that they couldn't re-enter. Let's return to the tabernacle. Who, would, who could enter the most holy place? Only one man once a year, the high priest. Why did he go in there? Was it because he was such a good guy? No. It was because and Nadab and Abihu sort of represent that when they are destroyed with fire inside that area. It was because he went in there to make atonement for sin, his sin and the sins of the people. And so that priest, when he entered the most holy place, is the exact opposite of the man in Psalm 15. So the priest would go in and then he had to leave for another year. So what the psalm here teaches us is that the perfect person will be allowed to live and stay in the close presence of God But anyone not meeting such a requirement will be moved away because God is utterly pure and holy and he cannot dwell in the midst of sin. So you see, when you read Psalm 15, if you just read it by itself, you kind of go away thinking, well, nobody can do that, so I need to moralize this in order to make any sense of it. When we read Psalm 15 together with Psalm 14, Well, now the picture is completely bleak. A perfect person can dwell with God, but all have turned aside and together have become corrupt. And I got to tell you, that means trouble. 
And yet, like Psalm 14, which shows that somehow some totally depraved people become righteous, Psalm 15 implies that some people do, in fact, sojourn on God's tent, in God's tent, and dwell on the holy hill in his presence. And this is what causes, I think, the natural moralistic tendency to take over when we read Psalm 15. I mean, we see that there's obviously people there. David is saying that he's one of them. And since people are obviously sinful, then the psalm can't be talking about perfection. But I think that that kind of a move is just unfaithful to the language of the psalm. And actually, it's totally unnecessary. And so let me explain why by going to Psalm 15 or 16. A mictum of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night, also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David begins, again it's a psalm of David, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Now here's where those um, links with other words become so important. Psalm 15 asks, Who will live in the tent where God is, or on the mountain where God lives. Who will live there? In Psalm 16, David says that he must not be, he doesn't say I have to be found in the tent or the hill. He says, in you I take refuge. That is, in God himself. Now that in language is the New Testament language that applies a believer's relationship to Jesus Christ. We are in Christ. We are in union with Christ. I'm getting ahead of myself a little. And because of the conclusion in Psalm 14, David confesses in verse 2, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. You see, that's perfectly consistent with what was said two psalms ago. But it's different because it says, I have no good apart from you, isn't it? Implying that in you, I do have some good. Now again, the New Testament uses that same language. The apostle says, I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. And Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so the New Testament language actually comes from places just like this psalm. They're not making it up. They knew their Bibles and they saw its fulfillment was in Christ. And again, I get ahead of myself. But you can see how the New Testament is applying it. The psalm tells us that there are saints in the land now in the next verse, verse 3, and it calls them excellent or majestic ones. How did they get that way? 
Well, the psalm will finally begin to unravel the answer that we've been wondering about for these three psalms. Verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. That's kind of interesting that uh, some say there is no god in Psalm 14.1, right? But here, others are worshiping the wrong god. And so verse 5 gives you the answer to both. But the Lord, Yahweh, is my chosen portion and my cup. What kind of a cup is this? Well, it's not a cup of coffee. It's a bloody cup. See this right here? In front of us this morning. The psalmist has in mind a drink offering. What is this portion that he talks about? It's the blood that goes into the cup of the drink offering. The Lord is the cup, and he's that which it contains. I could show you that from other places, but we don't have time this morning. Verse 5, the Lord holds his lot. Now, this is great, because you could come away from the previous verse going, oh, it's like an Arminian text or something. The Lord is his chosen portion. God holds his lot. Perhaps he's mixing metaphors. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So it seems that for David, God can be his chosen portion only because God has first chosen him. God holds his lot. He holds his future in the bloody cup in his own hand. And this is a typology, really, that we talked about earlier. This sacrificial foreshadowing that brings with it the great hope and expectation of something wonderful that's coming in the future Therefore, verse 6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And what is his inheritance? His inheritance isn't that uh, you know, his, his grandma died and left him a, a, a big sum of money or a place to live. His inheritance is God himself. All other treasures pale in comparison throughout the Psalms. Compares God to the gold and silver and jewels and everything that you can think of that you would want in this world and says God is above all of these things. They even treasure uh, pale in comparison to the tent and the holy hill, frankly, because those are only copies of the, of the thing that is in heaven. The Lord gives him counsel and changes his heart. You see that? So that now his heart is actually instructed by the Lord. He sets the Lord before him. The Lord goes out before him, but he's also at his right hand. There's the right hand that we mentioned earlier today. And therefore, he shall not be moved. Oh, there's that word again. Go back to Psalm 15, remember? He who does these things shall never be moved. And we saw that Adam was moved. And we saw that the high priest was moved. And all the wicked are moved in their sin. And everyone on the face of the earth is wicked. But in Psalm 16... Because the Lord is at his right hand, I shall not be moved. You see? It's the same Hebrew word. The psalmist is telling you now how not to be moved. And it is not through your own righteousness. It is through an alien righteousness. We still need perfection. It's not like the requirements of Psalm 15 have stopped. But we cannot attain that perfection ourselves. This perfect standing, though, is there and available and can be found 
by moving into where God himself is in Christ. And we move into God because he holds the cup and our lot. Therefore, verse 9, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh even dwells secure. And there's the word dwell. Remember Psalm 15 again. Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And now it answers, my flesh dwells secure because I take refuge in God in this psalm. Now, so secure is his dwelling that you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And so this verse is a text where David is saying, I am certain of resurrection. And that's a verse of resurrection in the Old Testament. And yet, I hope you know that there's so much more in this verse that we don't even have to guess at in this case. See, this verse is quoted directly in Acts 13. Why don't you turn to Acts 13? So verse 30, God raised him from the dead. Talking about Jesus. And for many days he appeared to those to whom, uh, who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it's written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and uh, sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. And then it says, for David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. And so we see that the words of Psalm 16, 8 are only about David in a typological way, don't we? Ultimately, these are words about Jesus Christ himself. So in that this is a psalm about Jesus, we only find the answer to our greatest question about dwelling on a holy hill in Jesus We've seen hints throughout these three psalms that they pointed forward to him. In Psalm 14, somehow those who don't seek after God are seeking. And salvation will come to Israel out of Zion somehow. And then there's this transformation from Jacob to Israel that will bring rejoicing. And then in Psalm 15, we know now that only a perfect man can stand on a holy hill of God. And yet there is clearly a need for a perfect person to do this because we can't find our hope in David or in any of, our, our, any of us in this room. And then in Psalm 16, the language of the New Testament's in Christ is alluded to. And the cup of our salvation and the blood of Christ is held forth. And the beautiful inheritance of Christ and all his benefits shines brilliantly. In Christ, the way to Mount Eden and the tree of life is restored. We could go to Revelation and see that. A firm and unmovable ascent into the most holy place is provided by Christ, the great high priest, who went before us and offered a perfect atonement and sat down at the right hand of God in Hebrews. 
Having lived without sin, his perfect offering allowed him to enter the tent, to stand on the holy hill, not the one made with human hands, but into heaven itself. And he was unmoved. He is the second Adam, the perfect human that we needed for our salvation and that was anticipated throughout these Psalms. Isn't that amazing? One of the more remarkable comments of the perfect man in Psalm 15 is that he swears to his own hurt and does not change. As I was was writing this, I was thinking about Hebrews so much and then Hebrews 6 came into my mind because in Hebrews 6, God convinces you and I, the heirs of the promise, about his goodwill towards us in Christ by saying this, through the unchangeable character of his purpose, which he guaranteed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that's set before us. And so there's the language of taking an oath to his own hurt. And was there any other hurt that was ever greater than the hurt he endured in carrying out that uh, sworn oath between the Father and the Son when he died for our sins and was forsaken by the Father? There's also the language of Psalm 15.4, of Psalm 16.1, in you I take refuge. We have strong encouragement and we hold fast we who have fled for refuge might have this encouragement and the hope that's set before us in Christ. This oath was sworn by the Father to the Son in, in Psalm 2. You are my Son, I have, today I have begotten you. In Psalm 104, or 110 verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And as this Psalm puts it, Psalm 15, this oath was a swearing to God's own hurt in that eternal covenant But God would not change, and Jesus was cast off in history. In that moment on the cross, he was moved away from the Father's presence, and he became a sin offering. He was forsaken by God, and he was afflicted. Nothing ever cost anyone more than that. But he was vindicated three days later in the resurrection from the dead that we read about in Psalm 16, and he has everlasting life. And so the psalmist can can conclude as he looks forward, By the Holy Spirit, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there's the hand again, our pleasures evermore. The right hand is the Lord Jesus. Friends, God is making known to you the path of life right now as you hear the words. We are gathered in this incredible uh, gathering where not only we are present, but angels are surrounding us. And God has come near to his people through his word. And Jesus is the path and the way and the life. Those are his words. John understood what the psalmist promised, that in your presence is the path of life and the fullness of joy. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and indeed is the very arm of God, as Isaiah tells us. Isaiah knew that Christ fought for Israel as her angel and her captain. In Christ are all the pleasures and treasures and wisdom in Colossians. Paul understood where our hope lies. The Psalms are about Christ, but it took us a little bit, a little while to get there to see how, but I hope it was worth the wait because now we're able to see him in a way that uh, takes seriously our own depravity, uh, takes seriously God's law, 
take seriously the fact that these things weren't fulfilled in the Old Testament, that David awaited something else. We didn't have to fit Christ into some, you know, as some square peg into some round hole. We're able to take the text as it is, but it ultimately leads us to the Savior, which is what all of the scripture does. And so I have to ask you this morning, have you come to Christ, to the holy hill? Are you in him? He warmly invites you, even this moment, to see the riches that can be yours if you will but turn to him in faith and repentance. He pleads with you not to die, not to be like the fool, not to trust in false gods, but to turn to his son for life, just as David did. And then learn to read the Psalms together, beloved. Learn to read them in context. Look for these patterns, these repeatable phrases and ideas. Be honest with the language that you see there. You don't have to make it say something it doesn't say. Just keep reading. Let it tell you what it wants you to learn. And most of all, continue to look to Jesus as the one who saves you from your sin and your own non-seeking. As he reckons righteousness to your account and brings you to God's holy hill, look in faith and worship, for that is the chief end and the whole duty of man. Let's pray together. Father, we love your word, and we would pray that we have seen today the glories of the riches of our Savior through it. And I would pray that, uh, that you would cause us to do this evermore, even as we leave this place, that that would be one of the glories you're transforming us to, that we would see more of Christ and less of ourselves. Thank you for this church very much, for its pastor and its elders, for its people. I would ask a great blessing upon them. And I would ask that if there are any who do not know you, that they would be brought to you by the power of your word, which is living and active and able to bring dry bones to life and raise the very dead like Lazarus. And I would pray that for those even who are discouraged in their own faith today, that they might be uh, encouraged because of what they've seen and heard through the word today, including the songs, including the Lord's Supper that's to come. We would ask a blessing upon the hearing of your word to the end that you would be glorified in your people today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.